Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology and Around. My guest is Andrew Wilson, who is a teaching pastor at King's Church London and a columnist for Christianity Today. He has degrees in history and theology from Cambridge University and King's College in London. He's the author of several books, including this most recent one called Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West. And this forms the uh, topic for our conversation together. And I really, really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, I think you will too. So please welcome back to the show, the one and only Dr. Andrew Wilson. Andrew, was it in 2016 when I was in Eastbourne, when we recorded, when you were on the the podcast last or have you been on since then do you remember oh no i've been i have been on the podcast i think we spoke about spiritual gifts in oh, the right. in the church charismatic gifts and we sp- had a decent conversation about race and diversity in the church as well but i don't know if that was the same conversation I, maybe we've spoken yeah. once or twice before. so maybe once yeah. since then but um I, I I think I've told this story before, but my first time uh, coming across your work was in that, probably a lot of people say this, right? That that, that debate you had with Rob Bell, gosh, yeah. 12 years ago. Um, and it kind of, I don't, it didn't go, viral might be a little too strong, but I feel like a lot of people saw that video. Where yeah, it's probably were, the thing I've done most people have seen, yeah. Okay. <laughs> And I remember he 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 did he was not on his game, and I I I was like, who's this Andrew Wilson guy? He's really sharp. And anyway, we've connected and been friends ever since. So, um, your your new book caught me by surprise. Uh, remaking the world: How 1776 Created the Post Christian West. Now, for I already have so many questions. One is, what's a biblical <laughs> scholar doing writing on what I thought was American history? And then number two, I love the audacity of you writing on 1776 and then in the first few pages saying, this book actually has very little to do with uh, the founding <laughs> of the United States. <laughs> I mean, it's it's part of it, but it's not. You know. an English guy. <laughs> um, so yeah. for, I, the first question, have you? I, I know you have uh, history as kind of part of your degrees, but I always think of you as just like a biblical scholar. Yeah. Where did this? Where did your? Where did you wanting to write on history come from? So, also primarily, I'm, I think of myself as a pastor. So, I, I, which is not just an out. Like, you know, academically, I've done. I did a PhD in theology, but my undergrad degree was history and theology. But really, I come to it as a, as a pastor and as a preacher in a way, thinking I I do I have to do cultural apologetics, or that's the language I would often use now to describe it all the time, um, and. So I think I'm coming to this much more as a, I'm trying to understand the culture we're in. And I've found that history can be a really good way of introducing it to people. And it can be, a, I hope, a really compelling story to help people mm. get their, you know, categories, which would sound a little bit dull if you said, well, we believe the following seven things are all at work at once. If you tell people the story, it makes it more arresting, I hope. Um, but the for me, the, the genesis of this project was just, was a collision really between two different things that I came across in my just wider reading being interested one was i just didn't know that the steam engine was invented the day before the wealth of nations was written and that that all published and that that happened in the same year as the declaration of independence no one had ever taught me any of those things and they and so when i read those in there was one book i read and i i suddenly thought oh wow this is a really significant year in terms of its economic and its industrial and its political ramifications i'd like to learn more about that as a subject Mm -hmm. of interest 
And that just began as a sort of, oh, maybe one day I could write something explaining this story just for fun. Mm. But along the same time, I then read, um, I was coming across the work of John Heights, who I know you've, you've come yeah. across as well, and, and Joseph Henrich and others, about this sort of the, the way that the Western world is, the acronym WEIRD, uh, you know, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. And I don't remember quite how it happened, but there was a moment where I put the two together. I think I was in the shower. And I just suddenly thought, hang on a second, I might be able to explain how our culture became like this using this acronym drawing on this one year in which so many of these changes were sort of fermented and, and really took off. And then I just found that with a, that was an interesting story to tell and I began to think it might work. And so I, I've very much done this as a sort of apologist, preacher, pastor person, rather than, a, I'm not a historian by training, although obviously I've read a bunch of history um, and theology, but that wasn't really what was motivating it. I think it's an attempt to say, this is why the culture you're in feels and thinks yes. and behaves the way it does and this is how a, a way of telling that story rooted yeah. in one year that hopefully particularly america will, will well, you find make, you, interesting you make a great pastoral argument for why understanding history matters for one you have that cool quote or that quote that famous quote i forget who it's by you know if you control the past you control the future or you control the present yeah. who yeah. who is that yeah so this is all, all wells yeah if the people who control the present control the past right but the people who control the past control the future so, so that works. I mean, that uh, on the flip side, if you understand the past, it helps you understand the present and future, and how you get you, get your kind of bearings about where we're at as a society. Um, yeah, I, yeah I, I had no clue how many things happened in 1776. You you go down this list of things in this one year alone. I mean, it's in things are unrelated, seemingly unrelated to each other, right? Yeah. What are I some think other? They are. In many cases, yeah. they are genuinely unrelated. So, I I, I think there's. You know, so I mentioned so the steam engine, the wealth of nations, Edward Gibbons' history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, all the events in America that obviously would be more well known to, I guess, most of your listeners, but those who aren't American, um, you know, the Declaration of Independence, the Battle of Brooklyn, Washington's Crossing, Common Sense, Thomas Paine's book, um, and and even things like the Virginia Declaration, which ends up sort of encoding things like religious liberty and freedom of the press. I mean, just so many things in the American scene. But in Europe, the Enlightenment is, you know, it's high noon of the Enlightenment, really. It's a sort of dramatic period in the development of what we now think of as post-Christianity or the move towards a, a secular public square. Immanuel Kant, Kant is drafting the critique of pure reason. David Hume writes his dialogues and then dies. Captain Cook sailing around the world um, mm. and encountering all sorts of Polynesian peoples, which has massive implications for the history of the Pacific Islands and, and subcontinents and so on. Um, and I mean, that, that's not even all of the Romanticism, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the Sturm und Drang and, in Germany. And I mean, it's just a remarkable year where uh, you, you'd look at nearly every feature of modern life and say, well, some in some way that is connected to events that took place in this year. And it's just a really great story, I think. Whether I told it well is another matter, but as in the story as a whole is really compelling because these things are, as, as you say, they're kind of independent. It's not like the American Revolution happens and suddenly people go, oh, we must write stories okay. about the self. Like th that's They are obviously connected at a looser level, but they aren't causally related, in part because news takes three months to travel from one right. side of the Atlantic to the other. And so these things are not all directly related to one another in, in sort of cause and effect. It's just there is something going on, and not just out in the world, actually in the church as well. You know, the amazing, you know, amazing grace and the only hymns and rock of yeah. ages and religious freedom and abolitionism in Britain and, and so many moves like that that are all happening at once. It's just a very exciting period. 
but like like you said early on in the book this isn't this isn't come out of nowhere like there's various things leading up to it what what, what would you say are some of those things leading up to just 1776 being this this cataclysmic upheaval of, of so many things going on for good or for ill. I mean, it, obviously the printing press, I mean, a few hundred years before that, you yeah. know, uh, 76, 70, 1776 wouldn't have happened without the printing press, but what are some other things that were going on that kind of gave the, gave some of the momentum to some of these massive changes? Yes. I mean, I, I think in some ways the, the Protestant reformation would be in, in, in not just as a, an event, but as a sort of a 50 year process in the 16th century for the, for its impact in Northern Europe in particular, um, you know, obviously Britain, well, it wasn't Britain at the time, but Britain and and the Netherlands and probably setting a slightly different path uh, in terms of what, what event, if effectively obviously fragments Christendom in the end, which I think is a significant part of the story, but also a huge significant rise in literacy which is then very significant in the exchange of knowledge, which is taking place at the time. Um, I think it's also, in a way, does contribute to the competition between European nations for empires, and that was already starting, obviously, before the Reformation. But And that's a big part of this story for, for good, but also much for ill, as we know. Um, I think probably the shape of something like uh, abolitionism wouldn't have taken the form it did without that being a Protestant offshoot as well, at least in the in its incarnation in Britain. And I think that the developments in technology, which are really beginning to mm-hmm. accelerate, are, are also, as I try and make this case in the book, they are connected to Protestantism as well in certain ways um, and very much a, a product of English-speaking nations, um, mm-hmm. which is a fascinating story as to why that is. So I think there's a lot of things that probably have roots somewhere in that combination you mentioned between the printing press and Protestantism. And I think in, in many others, it, it's... Some of it is some of its political um, changes beginning. Some of it's just a sort of almost accelerating of history that you you reach a, a you begin to reach a tipping point where changes and de- and innovations get baked in rather than mm-hmm. going along in a flurry of new developments and then running out of steam and cannibalizing themselves. You, it does seem that in the mid eighteenth century, maybe it's just the trajectory of society as a whole, but a lot of these developments begin to get baked in and reinforce one another and one idea sparks another idea and so although as i said these things are not causally connected someone like your own benjamin franklin is involved anecdotally or in a sort of very observey kind of way with many of these things so he Mm -hmm. pops up in the cafes of the enlightenment and he's also friends with all of the lunar men developing industrial technology and he's also a founding father and he's also a diplomat in france and so you, you could live, like David Hume did, a life where you're connected to a lot of these changes. And some of that is society's beginning to reach a level of education, literacy, and affluence that change begins to accelerate. And yeah. so some of it is, is that. But a lot of that, I think, has to do with Protestantism as well. Okay. You, you mentioned, as, as one of these many significant events, uh, Fr- Benjamin Franklin's diplomatic mich- uh, journey to France. What, yeah. what was significant? I, I think you maybe go back to that later on in the book, which I haven't got to yet. What what was significant about that specific? <laughs> I'm going to get myself in trouble. But basically because the French won the war uh, rather than the Americans. <laughs> that's a harsh way of saying it. You know, it's implicated. That's, that's a very overstated question. Um, but I think that line in Hamilton, isn't it? You, you cheat with the French, now I'm fighting with France and with Spain. Um, but obviously I think that the contribution of the, the – the involvement of the French in the American-British War. So the real the superpowers uh, in the world at the time are 
Britain and France, or, and, and originally England and France, and they'd been fighting for, well, it's almost a thousand years in a way from, you know, 1066 to present day that you could trace the story. And, um, and we had had a huge, which would be known as the French Indian War in America, but in much of the rest of the world, it's just known as the Seven Years War. Mm-hmm. And that, that conflict, uh, which obviously then the, Ben Franklin goes to Paris and tries to get the French to join in. And okay. the, the, effectively, the, the French say, well, maybe, but then eventually battles start turning the Americans' way and the French say, great, we'll pile in. But that has two huge implications because it obviously means that the Americans in the end win. So, the, you know, Yorktown and all that is not, not least because the French Navy and the French Army. But also it has cataclysmic impacts in France. So it's often said that Britain loses the war but wins the peace and mm. France is the other way around. So France wins the war against Britain with America as almost like a a proxy from a French perspective. But the result is they spend so much and are committed so much and end up in their conflict with Britain economically suffering so much that they become a bit of an economic mess in the 1780s and that ends up leading to revolution. Um, So the French Revolution is in some ways an unintended consequence, many ways, an unintended consequence of the French supporting the Americans in the war against Britain. So Britain obviously lose. But 30 years later, Britain is trading merrily with America and is actually roughly doing okay um, on a trade point of view. And the French have gone into revolution and then that's turned into Thermidor and then eventually Napoleon. So its its impact in Western Europe and North America is very large. That, that diplomatic connection that was made in, in 1776. Oh, that's that's fascinating. I never – so I my <laughs> – you you know more about my history uh, than than I do certainly. Um, but I but whenever I go to the UK though, I feel like uh, people in the UK know more about American history than a lot of Americans. It's so funny. Um, well, that is not. I tell you what, when I say this book is about seventy six, most English people say, "What on earth happened then?" It's just not a number that is meaningful to them. So. Oh, really? Okay. Um, well, you probably had a fairly unusual sample size if you studied a PhD at a British university. Yeah, maybe that they're more more aware than the average <laughs> Brit. I would think. Well, I'm thinking more maybe more contemporary, like definitely American politics. I feel like within seconds of talking to anybody in in the UK um, that they want to talk when they find out American, they want to talk about, you know, American politics, but that, um, that might just be because they they know I'm American. So that's where they want to go as well. But um, yeah, what is it? Well, with the French revolution, I, I didn't prep you ahead of time, so I apologize if, if um No, I'm, if I'm asking... I prefer conversations like this. It's great. Oh fun. good, good, good. I do too. I, I rarely give questions ahead of time. So um since the American Revolution and the French Revolution were so close to each other, and like you just said, that they weren't completely distinct, like they were related in, in many ways. What are some difference like similarities and differences between the French Revolution and the American Revolution? Ooh. Um have you thought that's about a, that? Is is that like something that's a well known yeah, kind of comparison? I, and I, I do actually I get into that a bit. In, in the chapter on um, on democracy, hmm. because I think the puzzle for, uh, you know, you, no one's an objective historian, but the, the puzzle for a, a neutral-ish historian is why why didn't, the surprise is the American Revolution. Why did the American Revolution survive? Hmm. Because I think the French Revolution does what most revolutions do, which is, in a way, it collapses under its own weight. Um, you, you end up, you know, the animal farm phenomenon, to be honest, is in Orwell's terms, or the Russian Revolution, where you know we'll get rid of the the big guys, but then we'll become the big guys, and then we'll get taken down, and eventually the whole thing implodes until a strong right. man comes along and says, "Guys, we've got to pack it in," which is what Napoleon eventually does. So France is is a slightly, almost a paradigmatic example of what happens when revolutions run amok, 
the surprise in a way is why that doesn't happen in America. And I think the, the difference is because, in my framing of things anyway, the American Revolution is, has got two parents ideologically. And I think one, one is sort of British wiggery. Um, so people who are quite concerned about this so the, and, and the glorious revolution in England, and then sort of people who would say, we must make sure that we preserve, you know, we, ideally, we don't really mind monarchs. We think they're fine. We just don't like them taxing us too much without representation, but we want stability. We want a separation of powers. We want solid institutions. We definitely don't want the mob running the show. Mm-hmm. So you've got that impulse represented in the American revolution by people like George Washington and John Adams and many others who would be familiar names. But you've got in America, you've got that sort of Whiggish, you know, we must make sure we have solid institutions mingled with this sort of very zealous, idealistic, all people are created, all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with these supreme. And you've got the sort of very rhetorically bombastic, zealous, more French influence, the sort of radicalism, all human beings, of course, they didn't live this way, most of them. But in theory, all human beings are equal. And that's not, I mean, in, in so many ways, I mean, so Alexander Hamilton and John Adams and George Washington are concerned by different problems. They've got, they've got different objections to what might be happening in the revolution than mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine, because on, they're almost on op- looking at opposite problems. And so you, you're sort of, your Whig guys, the, who met much form the Federalist group, are effectively, in the end, are effectively saying, we're concerned that the mob might take over. And, but whereas the more, the people who become the Democratic Republicans, the sort of Jefferson Payne tranche of the movement, are saying we're concerned that not the mob won't have, an, almost the people won't have enough power and we're going to still be run by a monarch. John Adams seems to want George Washington to be called Your Majesty. All that, they're terrified mm. of it's almost too much like the British model. And so effectively, you have a British thread and a French thread, which in the American Revolution come together mm. and the American Revolution just survives. Like in the 1790s, I think you could say, it very nearly didn't. It, it, it descended into such acrimony, mudslinging. It could very easily have imploded, mm. but it didn't. Somehow it survived. And I think, you know, some some of this is a lot of the book is tracing deep historical causes and saying people don't really make the difference we think. But on, in, on occasion, and in this one, I really think a handful of remarkable individuals really did do things and say things that meant a nation was able to cohere in spite of those tensions. And George Washington I do think is one of those, just a remarkable person. And had he not handed over power the way he did, you, America probably would have fragmented and imploded like in a different way like France did. Hmm. But is that is really the tension between, say, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson or John Adams and Thomas Paine, that, that sort of those two perspectives that came together that meant America was radical enough to be compelling, but it was also conservative enough to survive. And it still is. Uh, and that gets fought out every election, which is probably why your friends want to talk to you about American politics all the time, because there's more at stake in those debates than there yeah. are in Britain or even France. Did I tell you the time when I, my first summer in uh, Aberdeen, Scotland, and my little family, my wife and my one kid at that time, and, and some American friends were getting together for a 4th of, 4th of July celebration. And, and I remember inviting one of my, my, new, my newly minted British friends to the party. And he's like, yeah, we usually don't celebrate the times when you know one of our colonies broke off from us <laughs> this is how this is how jaded americans can be though like i literally here i am somehow got accepted into a phd program i'm in my what late 20s already fairly well educated and it it didn't really dawn on me i was like oh yeah huh I haven't thought about it like that before <laughs> like never had just like broader picture of what 
you know, the founding of, of the founding, the establishment of however you want to word it. I, I, there's so many politically incorrect ways of putting it, but, but the time when, you know, these American, these, these British colonies broke off from, from the mothership. But, um, in your, do you talk about the question of whether well, the whole, like, you know, America was founded as a Christian nation that that's become, I think, a it's always kind of a talked about thing here. It's, it's a, you know, matter of debate and especially with the, whether it's a rise in Christian nationalism or at least Christian nationalism is, is becoming a topic that's more talked about. It, it, I feel like the whole is America was America ever a Christian nation that that's come up more and more from a historical standpoint. What is the answer to that question? What, you know, what was America founded as a Christian nation? That is, that's, um, that's great. It's just the English guy to throw him under the bus. Um, yeah, I, so I have this, I, you probably haven't got to this bit yet, but I, I talk a bit in, um, uh, I make quite a lot of uh, the, the story in which the declaration of independence is edited. Have you come across this bit yet? Not where, yet no, ben, no. where Ben Franklin, Jefferson sends him a draft of the declaration in late June. You mentioned and, it, you mentioned it early on, but yeah, you haven't got, I haven't. Yeah. So, so Jefferson yet. sends Franklin a draft and says, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. And Franklin crosses it out and writes self-evident. And it, I use it as a metaphor really for the post-Christian West, which is we take things that ultimately are Christian sacred truths and then say, these are now just obvious to everybody. So we can put them down to results of reason. And see that that's in some ways quite a good, I, I, I hope the, the beginnings of a good answer to that question. So to what extent is it a Christian nation? I think it's enormously, it's very much a Christian nation if what you mean is it, it is founded on, on a logic and a, an anthropology and a belief in the orderedness of history and, and rights which could never have emerged outside of a Christian milieu. That, that's definitely true, but in that sense... Britain is a Christian nation, and so is France, and so is Spain, and so it's so pretty much anywhere in the, that descends from Christendom. But I think usually people in your country in the debate today mean more than that it is a Christian nation. I mean, there's something in the founding charter that that doesn't that doesn't hold up if the nation is not confessionally Christian or there is not an all majority Christian. And in that sense, I don't think it is. And what I slightly facetiously do <laughs> towards the end of that chapter is I say that in many ways, I, I talk about Protestant paganism. I say that I think the post-Christian world is a fusion of Protestantism and paganism. Mm -hmm. And that's my explanation of why the world is post-Christian to the extent that it is. And I say in many ways, the best statement of Protestant paganism out there is the Declaration of Independence, because it is a fusion of sectarian Protestants and Unitarians, Deists and the like. And, it, and it's a collision between the two that you end up with both statements, in even in the opening paragraph, which are... In, inconceivable without a Christian view of providence and anthropology yeah. and even theology, you know, endowed by our creator. Right? Most people in human history haven't believed in one creator anyway. So that's a very Christian yeah. statement. And yet the, the focus and the trajectory of the document takes Christian principles and kind of universalizes and slightly somewhat secularizes them through the influence of people like Franklin and Jefferson and other varying to varying degree deistic thinkers and as a result, becomes much more, much more pagan. I don't mean pagan in a pejorative sense. I mean, in a, sure. almost in a technical sense, like people who believe that the sacred is located within the world, not beyond it. Hmm. And I think the Declaration is is a great example of that phenomenon. And then I show how it's also true in Gibbon and Hume and many other thinkers at the time, Voltaire. But in in the context of the Declaration, I think so. I'm thinking in that sense, America is simultaneously Protestant and pagan, which is what so surprised Tocqueville when he visited later, saying well, these guys are 
always going on about how much they love God, but it's hard to imagine a society in which people are more devoted to the present pursuit of pleasure than Americans. So what's the story there? They they seem so religious, yet they seem, in my terms, very pagan as well. And I think, yeah, that that's the collision that is represented in many ways, even within the declaration itself. That, may, that makes a lot of sense. So like, uh, I don't know if uh, Jamie Smith and others have talked about the, the craters of the gospel um, that have been left on many Western uh, nations to where the impact of a Christian worldview has become embedded in just societal assumptions, you know, the, the, the goods of liberal democracy and, and religious freedom and these kind of things like maybe, yeah, I don't know if religious freedom would be the right one, but like there, there's, there's in, an impact, the imprint of the, that the gospels yeah. had on society, but that's different than saying it's, it's a Christian nation in the sense that here's a bunch of zealous sold out Christ followers trying to establish yeah. a nation under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Rather it's yeah. saying that Christianity has had such a, uh, uh, an impact on society that people take for granted certain aspects yeah. of a Christian worldview as just self-evident. That's interesting. So the edit, he was editing it away from, he was trying to tweak the language. So it was less religious and more secular for lack of a better, yeah. better term. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that, that would, I expect Franklin would probably see that as a slightly anachronistic. And he, he, I think he's yeah. trying to, he would yeah. see himself as trying to universalize something. He's saying this does not require okay sacred convictions to be able to ground it's itself it goes he would say it's grounded in reason not religion probably rather than saying i don't think he would see himself as secularizing but he's probably more just universalizing but i think the point is that the only you can only say that that if we this is self-evident because of christian assumptions about human beings and creation you the the whole paragraph drips with explicitly judeo-christian assumptions about human beings and creation and providence and so on and it's only self-evident. It, but that's the funny thing. It obviously wasn't self-evident. Like the reason they had to write this thing down was because a lot of people didn't believe it. And several of the founding fathers themselves hadn't believed it 10 years earlier. And most people in the world today still don't believe that it is a God-given right for you to overthrow the government you want, replace them with someone else if they're charging you too many taxes. Or it's not self, It clearly is not self-evident. Like, and that's why they say we hold these truths to be self-evident, as in we believe they are. Uh, but of course, Jefferson originally written they're sacred, and he, and if you trace the prehistory as I, as I do in that chapter, you can see that Jefferson's getting his language from John Locke, which many people know as they read John Locke. But you then go to Locke and look up where he got it, and he got it from Richard Hooker, and then you go to Richard Hooker and see that he was basically taking it straight out of Matthew's Gospel and the Code of Justinian. Like so, hmm. the, the even that famous paragraph has a genealogy that is very explicitly Christian and couldn't be said in even an islamic context let alone in a confucian or an atheist or an animist context it's it's a very christian influenced statement that couldn't really have been made anywhere outside of a, a, a sort of christendom a, a country that was leaving christendom at the time that that makes a lot of sense actually um i mean it, to, to use two more anachronistic categories you know they were trying to push it more towards like general re- revelation rather than special revelation rather than making yes. this a distinctly yeah. christian thing saying this is yeah, universalizing it. Um, in 1776, how could you write something like all men are created equal while slavery was still, while owning some of the founding fathers, yeah. right, were slave owners? Like, what, what, slaves. yeah. Do you, do you get into that? Or what, like, how could you write that? I, what, I was, it, was this what we're aspiring to do? Was, was there a kind of an anti slavery sentiment 
that was in existence there was a flickering light at that time or like what yeah yeah you you need to get tommy kid on to talk about this really because he's so good on it and it's, uh. it's just fast on jefferson specifically who is probably the most interesting example mm-hmm. i think that Lots of the founding fathers are varying degrees of hypocritical on this issue, but Jefferson is the most interesting, I think, because obviously he wrote the famous words and and yet was just such an example of someone who didn't live them out. And he, even by the end of his, even as he's, you know, near death, um, best part of 50 years later, uh, of course, he, yeah, he does die 50 years later, is is still saying this is not how the world has been made, but he still doesn't emancipate the slaves. So he, he, he lives with that conflict and he's a complicated man. And I think many of them lived with, almost an, an awareness of an inconsistency which is this is this is an this is something that should not be it is if we raise it too much now we will split this nation all the kind of defenses that people usually make of the founding fathers have truth to them but obviously they don't they don't excuse it either in the slightest and i think usually reflect reflect just a a fundamental moral inconsistency that in some ways when i read it i think oh wow what am i do I have inconsistencies like that in my own thought? Are there things which I profess to believe that I actually don't because of the way I've lived them out? Um, and I think sometimes it's just as simple as this would have been enormously complicated and expensive for me. Um, or it would have been, and I think sometimes a more high-minded version would be, America is a beautiful idea and we'll lose it if we push this point too hard. But in the end, what they're really saying is, yeah, the, the equality of black Americans is not as important to me as the unity of white Americans. And mm. that must be what they, in some, somewhere in them, there must be some triage taking place like that between different goods. So I don't attempt to excuse it at all. Obviously it's, it's not my, yeah. I don't have a dog in that fight in the slightest. And I, I think as I'm watching, reading them thinking, wow, how on earth could you guys not see this? But you kind of have to at least attempt to understand how people saw the world themselves. But uh, yeah, you should, honestly, you should interview Tom Kidd because he's really interesting on this whole thing. And it's got a very, it's a fascinating take on religion and the founding fathers. He knows far more about it than I do, but that's the, that's the best I've got at the moment. I think they just lived with an inconsistency that they did genuinely believe two irreconcilable things and believed one of them more strongly than the other and therefore lived accordingly. So, so when, when they wrote those words, you're saying there's, you, again, we can't climb inside their minds or hearts, but they, they probably recognized the tension. It wasn't like they were just oblivious to, writing something that was just a directly being, you know, not lived I think out. Some of them did. Okay. I think some of them did. So I think you do, you do have some of them who obviously are, I, I don't mean Jefferson, um, but I, I think you actually have a spectrum. You have people who are already becoming quite emphatically pro slavery saying, I'm going to defend this as a moral good. That most of that doesn't kick in for another 30 or 40 years. And that's for economic reasons, really. But in the 1770s, you have people who would say this, you might have a few people who say this is a good, you have some people who say, no, it's not really, but actually we can just live with it. And at the end, particularly in the South, this is just the way our economy works. Then you have people who say, this is a problem and we need to change it. But we, for now, we need to compromise in order to hold the nation together, which is more like where you end up with sort of Hamilton Adams. And then you get people who are more full on abolitionists, which obviously a lot of leading African-Americans are, and I talk a lot in the book about Lemuel Haynes, who's the the first, you know, sort of African-American preacher who comes out on this. And he's, he literally writes almost immediately after the declaration, using the declaration's language. Here you go. This is an argument for abolitionism. But you do have, and particularly in Britain, you have a lot of people slamming the Americans for their revolution, saying, how, how are you talking about freedom? And here you go, own slaves. What on earth are you doing? Like Samuel Johnson, all these guys. So you have plenty of people saying that as well. 
But I think most of the founding fathers are in the middle two camps, and there's plenty of conflict between them, obviously. I wonder, if it'd be si- I wonder if it'd be similar to, and this is to make a, I don't like making one, this isn't a one-to-one analogy, obviously, but like when, when preachers might stand up and preach against luxury and comfort and, and our addiction to material things, and it's like you transport anybody from like, you know, a non-Western country or a place where, you know, poverty is pretty rampant and put them in, in an American church and they're looking around saying, wait, you guys are saying this, but you're not like, yeah. you yeah. have a long yeah. way to go before you're coming close to living out. And even if you ask me, I'm like, yeah, I, what do you do? Like, I, I, I drive a car and I live in a house with air conditioning and heat. And like, I, you know, if I want food, I just go to the refrigerator and get it. If I don't want food in my refrigerator, I go down to the store and buy it. Like, it's just, it's, it's, we're just sort of swimming in luxury yeah. and comfort. And I'll yet that would be the first one to say like this, 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 this kind of, yeah, this, this isn't good for my faith. This goes against kind of, you know, uh, several st- streams of <laughs> scriptural yeah. thought, you know? So I don't know, maybe it's something like that where, where I think you, have, you have to allow yourself to be challenged by the same question. Don't you? Mm-hmm. I do think it's still different though, in that I think most pastors who preach against greed, hmm, you would think they may be being greedy, mm-hmm. but they probably don't believe they are. Whereas I don't think Jefferson didn't think he owned slaves, if you see what I mean. Like right. there, okay. there is, a, so I think there is a difference mm. where this is this isn't so much. This is would be like me saying we mustn't be greedy, and I am being greedy, and I and I still think that's morally acceptable, which I don't think is you know, maybe a thing, but it's I don't think that's common now. Mm. Whereas I think what Jefferson is doing is more odd and requires more sort of digging into how did a person get there because he is genuinely saying this ought not to be the case and I still do it. Um, and not just Jefferson, obviously there many, many others as well. But as I say, I, I think th- there'd be many who, this is such a huge question in the literature, many who've read and know far more about it than me. So I wouldn't want to deviate too far, but it, that, that's my, I think you're right though, that you have to apply when you ask that question of someone else, you have to go, where is the equivalent of that now? And I, you're right. I think material possessions are probably the most obvious place to look. I think it was, um, Robert George, oh, I'm going to butcher this. I pretty, I, I thought, I think I heard it about Robert George. I think I know what you're going to say. Is this the, the thread about you would have opposed slavery? Yes. I know you wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, it's he, Princeton professor, and he, you know, how he yeah. asks his, his class, how many of you would have opposed slavery 200 years ago? And everybody raised their hand, right? Like, oh, of course I would, you know. And then he, his next question is, so what are you doing now that that basically gets you ostracized from your own social tribe. <laughs> like what injustices are you, not against the other side about those people out there about Republicans or whatever, you know, but like, how are you being ostracized from your own tribal allegiances by pointing stuff out? You know, and everybody's like, oh, I'm not, not, not tweeting about that. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's really, it's, and that of course is the difference between our two nations on, on the response in the, in the sense that Britain, moves to abolitionism quicker partly because you just got less of an economic stake in it by that point okay. um and so it's not because british people are more moral or more able to see what the bible teaches it's because the you know what's that lovely line from upton sinclair it's very hard to get a man to understand something if his salary depends on him not understanding it and i think that's a big factor on yeah. both sides of the atlantic in this one that is one of my favorite quotes in the history of humanity it's so good <laughs> This episode is sponsored by the Pour Over Podcast. Oh my word, I love the Pour Over Podcast. It is a trustworthy news resource guiding people toward eternal hope. It's not Republican, it's not Democrat, it's not conservative, it's not liberal. 
Instead, it is a Christ-centered summary of the major events going on in politics and in culture. Uh, like most of you, I am so tired of news outlets that are so clearly biased toward the right or to the left. I want to stay informed with what's going on, but I hate how traditional news outlets shape my heart and try to win me to a certain side. I mean, if you don't believe me, just ask yourself this question. After listening to, say, I don't know, CNN or Fox News for like 30 minutes, am I less or more or more motivated to love my neighbor and my enemy? If the answer is less than Houston, we have a huge problem, a discipleship problem. This is why I'm so excited about the Pour Over podcast. Each episode is only about seven minutes long, and they just tell you about what's going on in the world. They don't tell you how to interpret the various events or how you should feel about what's going on. Instead, they just let you know about the facts of what's going on while reminding listeners that our ultimate identity and hope is in Jesus Christ. I've even met some of the people at the pour over and they are super awesome. They're not some like closeted liberal or closeted conservative think tank. Um, like they're truly genuinely just trying to keep us informed while staying focused on Christ. So. Don't let traditional media outlets steal your affection away from loving people who might vote differently than you. Instead, check out and subscribe to the Pour Over podcast in your favorite podcast app. Hello, friends. I want to let you know about a couple of events that I'm hosting on the LGBTQ conversation in Santa Clarita and then again in San Diego in California. Uh, the Santa Clarita event is October 16th and 17th. And the San Diego event is uh, October 19th and 20th. Uh, these are two um, different events. One is an evening conversation where we sort of introduce the LGBTQ conversation. And then the following day in both cities, we do a full day uh, training for church leaders, uh, again, on the LGBTQ conversation. We dig into theology, relationships, uh, pastoral ministry questions. We hear uh, testimonies from various people. It, um, it's a time when we can come together and uh, think deeply, love widely, dig into both truth and grace in what has become some of the most pressing questions facing the church today. Uh, to find out more about these two events, you can go to centerforfaith.com, uh, go to the events link, and you can find all the info there again, October 16th to the 17th in Santa Clarita, and then the 19th and 20th in San Diego. If you cannot make it out to California, or if you don't live anywhere near these cities, you can also stream these events uh, live online. Again, centerforfaith.com. What do you, what about like, I mean, you have Jonathan Edwards, you have Christian leaders who, it's one thing for somebody who's like part of this economics, you know, they're, they're at the political level or whatever, they're having to navigate many things. What about, what do you do with and I, I don't know. Maybe we don't need to go if, if, if you're like, this isn't my main area. No, I, I'm just, I have to wuss out a bit on Edwards. I mean, I, I have exactly the same question. How on earth did they think that? But I, I didn't, I don't know any more about Jonathan Edwards than the next man, really, because he's about, you know, died about 20 or 30 years before I start. I, I mentioned him in passing because of his relationship to Aaron Burr. But, and lots of people who know a lot have gone deep into Edwards and gone, this is obviously, obviously this is reprehensible. This is how he got there. I think he maybe did it this way, maybe did it that way, maybe did it the other, but I just haven't read enough of it to speak with any useful knowledge uh, on that really. Okay, let, let's let's uh different question here. This this will this will tap into your uh your uh expertise as a biblical scholar. Uh was the American Revolution, in your opinion, a violation of Romans thirteen? <laughs> 
my goodness. This is in a book that's not mostly about America. It's like, let's just talk about American politics. I know. How that's, much trouble <laughs> can we cause you in the space? We have to. Um, well, so you and I, we, you and I have, in fact, we might have bonded over our pacifism or nonviolence before anything yeah. else. I don't remember, actually. I think we spoke about that <laughs> way back um, when your book, Fight, came out. And so I think an awful lot of things are violations of biblical teaching on you know, violence, resistance, and so on, that many other Christians wouldn't. Um, so I think I, I would say it was, but I would say so was the, so were the British and so was the French Revolution. And so were an awful lot of things, in part because of the way that they take up arms and use them. Like, like any, kind of violent think, revo- any kind of violent revolution would be a violation yeah, of, ex- yeah. kind of exactly so what Paul's... And probably internet. you would, but an awful lot of, I think, perhaps a more... A, a harder version of the same question is yes, but let's say you didn't hold to assumptions about pacifism and nonviolence that you do. Would you still think it was wrong, even under the just war defense? And to be, I, if I'm honest, I just haven't really thought about that because that's not, it's a bit of a hypothetical. I've just never, partly it's 250 years ago, but partly it also predicates something that I don't believe um, and then says, what would you think if you did? So I, what well, do you I, think? I don't even think you need to be committed to nonviolence, really. I mean, um, because, you know, what are you going to say? Like, yeah, but you know, uh, the, the British empire was really oppressive at this time. Like Paul's writing under Rome <laughs> under yeah. Nero. Okay. So we're not talking about some like lesser, you know, uh, evil of an empire or something. And then you're like, yeah, but you know, the taxes were really oppressive and it was, a, it was, it was, it was unjust. It's like, Paul talks about taxes in the same thing. He goes right into paying taxes again taxation under under the roman regime was was i without doing a thorough comparison of the two i'm gonna guess is probably way more oppressive and unjust and funding all kinds of stuff so i don't know what argument like if paul can write what he did in romans 13 which i think well yeah i mean there's different different thoughts of kind of what his main point was there um but it seems to be clearly against at the very least some kind of violent overthrow kind of kind of a yeah, a violent overthrow of oppressive regimes ruling over you because ultimately God's in control and and so on and so forth. So, I mean, I think yeah, I don't, I don't know, I, I haven't, I haven't seen people make a good argument on the contrary that no, like like in this case, Romans thirteen would not really apply. I no, you can probably make the argument that the that the British are a lot worse, um, <laughs> which is I imagine where a lot of Americans would go with it, and no doubt it's true because I think Romans thirteen for me at least Romans thirteen would condemn both sides. Um, yeah. as as would a number of other you know biblical passages but yeah but it's obviously i don't really have a <laughs> have a reason to try and defend yeah. that position from that from that critique but i don't yeah, i guess I, I i would be more concerned somebody that would be so reluctant to say it was a violation like why what are we trying to yeah they violated they violated genesis 127 that all people are created equal you know like with slavery yeah, i mean yeah. i don't know why we would even need to feel the need to kind of like whitewash our history, like to me, the, the the desire to want to whitewash it is like, what 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 are the deeper things going on here? Yeah. Like, are we do we yeah. feel a need to have a more sanitized version of American history, um, or a more Christianized version? Like, let's talk about that. Like, to me, that yeah. that would be the greater yeah. the greater problem. Yeah, and, and and similarly with the expropriation of land from Native Americans, which is you know, so you you've got those you got those three, <laughs> haven't you? Well, you got three actors, you three people in whom with whom the American the early American state is in dialogue or conflicts, right? You mm-hmm. have African-Americans, you have Native Americans, you have the Brits and 
and then indirectly the French. And in all three cases, I just think in some ways the case for did you get it wrong with the Brits is probably the weakest of the three. As in, you can say you can clearly say, well, morally that's totally <laughs> unacceptable with with the first two, but maybe with all three. But then, of course, it sounds like I'll oh, get an English guy on a podcast and he'll say the American state is foundationally illegitimate and should never have started. <laughs> which is, I'm still hoping to be welcomed through the border next time I come. But um, yeah. Mm. <laughs> let's okay so let's get let's get off uh, uh our american high horses here my my yeah um the ac- let's go back to the acronym weird and you use uh weirder i think is a more because you want to what are the other two what are what's e and r x christian and romantic can you go through all all i guess seven is it seven can you go yeah. through all of them again and then maybe pick out one or two that you think are that you'd want to talk about so, something that's really significant maybe something that we haven't really thought about um is, is yeah, right. great. So, so W stands for Western, um, which I guess is the the trend of globalization, at, at least as I, that's what's going on in 1776. E stands for uh, educated, which I tell the story of the Enlightenment. I stands for industrialization or industrialized, which is the Industrial Revolution. R stands for rich, um, which basically, if you look at a, a a sort of chart of GDP. A, you know, world GDP over human history, you'll notice it just runs along flat line and then turns a corner of the hockey stick in the mid-1770s and shoots up and hasn't stopped increasing since. So that's a very important development. Then the D stands for democracy, which is obviously the American Revolution we've been talking about. Then the next E stands for ex-Christian, and then finally romantic, uh, which refer to the yeah the, the journeys of leaving Chris, beginning to leave Christianity behind, as we've touched on, and then the romantic uh, movement. Yeah. And so on, which which doesn't really begin in earnest until the 1790s, but all of its all of its seeds are there in the 1770s. I think. And, and your main point, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that it, it's hard to understand the way we think, the things we take for granted, you know, the the things we assume are goods in society like democracy. It's it's impossible to really unpack who we are today without understanding these kind of seven yeah. major shifts. Like these weren't a thing prior to. No. 1776. Really. No, they were all. They were, you know, some of them are, are closer to the surface than others. But absolutely, and and I think particularly, you can group them into two. There are um, so several of the, those developments are primarily things to do with um, matter, geography, like where you know ships, inventions, lands, minerals, maps. You know, in some cases, literally how a continent is wide versus tall or where navigable rivers are, all those sorts of things. And actually a bunch of what makes Western or weirder people, the kind of people that they and we are, is what looks like quite material contingencies. You'd Under the providence of God, you'd say, obviously God's in charge of it all, but you would you would say these things look like they're quite deep historical factors that, and they're to do with things that have, the advantages or whatever you call them, that have existed for, for Western people that are based on where coal is and where iron is and where the rivers are and what crops grow where and what animals are native to which country. And so you have a number of those factors which relate to industrialization, technology, globalization, and enrichment. And then you have a group of other factors in a separate, separate group, which are to do with the realm of ideas and the things that people think. So, you know, it's maps and chaps, right? Or, or you know, so what's where matter and then what ideas, what are people thinking, saying, writing? And one of the things I want to do in the book is to try and tell a story of the of the West and also really of, of apologetics of the church, of how we in, engage with the world we're in, that gives due credit to both of those types of cause. So I think there are not many in my circles, but there's plenty of more Marxist-leaning historians 
who would say these are this is almost all a result of deep causes that the individuals who get selected who writes which book that's not really the issue what what really matters is pretty deep it's deep down in the ocean that are pulling a culture one way or another and ideas are not that interesting and then you have obviously in our circles i expect most people you and i would talk to on podcasts or shows would be much much more interested in ideas than in mm. things like you know minerals and money and those sorts of things um and but i think in apologetics and in just christian thought we are in evangelicals certainly are inclined to place much much more emphasis no dramatically more emphasis on the ideas on who said what when and who wrote what and how influential it was and how well written it was and who it then influenced and in this book i'm trying to bring together both of those causes so several of the chapters are about literally about yeah inventions and about mm-hmm. some of them to the point of being about maps and coasts and mountains and to try and tell the story about how the west came to be what it is mingled with the ideas which are also incredibly important and so romanticism the enlightenment and leaving christianity behind or, or trying to and not succeeding are are very ideological and they of course feed into each other um and they're they're both you know they they affect one another and are shaped by each other but i think that's a really interesting i would say that but i think that's a really interesting story so those are probably the two main groups of causes that i'm trying to bring together um and you can see them playing if you you can see them playing together even in things like why did the industrial revolution happen when it did Mm -hmm. and where it did and say well some of that is to do with very boring arguments about what's on the map and some of it is to do with ideas like protestantism or literacy or um, experimentation novelty which might be grounded in christianity and and the the combination of the two is what made the world such that you and i are able to be five thousand miles away right now having a chat like it it, it comes from both material and ideal causes let let's I guess we should shift gears because your ultimate goal, like you said, I love it, is you're writing as a pastor, um, helping Christians um, understand how, where they're situated in society, and and again these kind of assumptions that we take for granted. What are some successes you would want to see somebody who reads this book and walks away as a pastor? Like, what do you want this book and the ideas in here to do in people's hearts and minds? Those who read it, uh, it's really good. Um, so this morning, our, the senior pastor who's uh, who I, I work with on our team here in our church came. He was just talking to the staff about it because he'd read it on his holiday and was just he's been very kind and commending it. But so I think what he said really, which which was that I think in reading it, he said I was com- regularly seeing connections between things in the world today that make sense of why people think and do and say the things that they think, Mm -hmm. do and say, and how as Christians we can serve and love people better if we understand those things. But also in the book, I want to point towards some ways in which the church, even at the time these changes are taking place, were responding to the issues in the world around them and how we can learn from them. So I think I want to explain to give people just a sense of of, of context, a sense of Sometimes even like people get a little a degree of power over something when they feel like they can name it or articulate it. I don't mean like therefore it's no longer um, a problem for them, but often people are very in our in the last ten fifteen years been very confused at the speed speed of change. And sometimes being able to say, look, here are some here are some things that have been going on for two hundred years that re- that are why that is happening now, rather than gosh, this has just come out of nowhere. It, it's mm. people get often get frightened and don't react well, and they become more tribal when they think this is just yet another complete shock out of nowhere. And I think it can help people to see a longer story to make sense of what's going on and to serve their friends and neighbors who 
are obviously living in that world too who don't believe in Jesus and to help them make sense of it as well. So that's one aim. It's just to sort of explain so that people can go, I see it. I've got some degree of agency now because I can understand this story and it doesn't shock me all the time. The other thing I wanted to do was to, as I say, to draw on what the church did at the time and say, there are, I think there are some lessons here. So I, I pick out particularly the issues of grace, or the Christian response of grace, freedom and truth, and talk about people, like the, the hymn writers at the time, and how suddenly and how dramatically they begin to describe the personal experience of grace and say how in the, in a weirder world, in a post-Christian world, grace becomes even more uh, important to share to show people because they, so much of the world is is powered by works in a way that it wouldn't be perhaps in a agrarian mm. pre-industrial society. So it's very grace almost goes up in strangely in its importance in a post-industrial post-Christian kind of world for all sorts of reasons. I talk about freedom and the response of abolitionism, but also religious freedom, and talk about how both of those things should colour our vision of freedom today and how. Obviously, that affects clearly in something an issue like like race or even fight, fighting modern day slavery, but also how we understand freedom in a holistic way, such that it's not just freedom from oppression outside, but freedom mm-hmm. from within as well, freedom from sin, freedom from mm-hmm. uh, our own fleshly desires, and then talk about truth through the work. Of my probably my favourite person I met while writing the book is Johann Georg Hamann, who's a German philosopher nearly nobody has heard of, who's just the most bri- one of the most brilliant minds ever. Um, and this very unknown Christian Lutheran guy who just, you know, savages brilliantly Kant and, and many other, but he's just a sort of genius thinker, but basically manages to take the Enlightenment on on its own grounds and say, actually pursuing even truth is incredibly important for us as well. So I have some guidelines, as I th- some ways in which I think the church then can help the church now live in the weirder world. So those are probably my two goals, yeah, explain the yeah. world and then help people think about how Christians should respond to it. Well, you, and you mentioned early on how the last several years, we can even say maybe a decade or eight, eight to 10 years, have seemed extra cataclysmic and disorienting. And people feel maybe an extra amount of fear, of, of um, anxiety. Um, do, do you come back to, I'm curious if you come back to that in, in the book, or is, would you, is, is in the back of your mind, are you trying to help people navig- navigate really specifically? Obviously, people who are reading a the book, they live now, but I mean, there, there is kind of a, seemingly a, a unique kind of cultural moment we're in. Would it help to yeah. understand kind of last 200 years, 1776, to even understand some of the unique changes and shifts and seemingly oh, cataclysmic things yeah. going on today? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of a lot of what's happening in the central bit of the book where I go through those seven developments is an attempt to answer that question, which is really, how do we get here and how are the different changes that we're experiencing, some of which we like and some of which we don't, connected to and symbiotic with each other. So you, what we want to do is say, well, I'd really like the increase in living standards. I'd like the increase in technological availability. I like the, the connectedness of the world, but I don't like Christianity being pushed to the margins. I don't like mm-hmm. the increasing secularization of the public square. I don't like what the, the idealization of the self or even the sexual revolution and its current consequences, all that sort of stuff. And in a way, in telling the story the way I have, I'm trying to say, look, those things are those things are connected in these ways. And actually, some of the things that we think of as just being as result of bad ideas are themselves a result of industrial technology, and that that's for good and evil. And some of it's meant we eat better and live healthier and are less likely to die in childbirth and all that sort of stuff. 
But it also means that our communities are likely to be hollowed out and people are less likely to go to church and people are more likely to idealize the self and more likely to make selfish, political, sexual, material choices. And those things are actually byproducts of the same kind of development. So when you see a sudden rush of social change, as we did between, say, 2014 and 2017, the consequences of which are still being felt now, it doesn't it doesn't make those things go away, but it, it puts them in a context of a story that you go, okay, so this development is actually bound up with something I really like. It's not just that's a bad thing. It's also a product of something that's also produced some good things. And being able to read the story that way, I hope, helps people not kind of panic or overreact at the same time as not being naive about how dangerous it can be. We just say we are in part also complicit in some of these things. Mm-hmm. And that some of the choices I make that I, for, for good reasons, have are connected to consequences or, or factors that might actually make Christianity harder for people, including myself. Smartphones are an obvious This kind of technology is one. Like, yeah. you know, it's I generally think the goods outweigh the bads, but some of it's bad in some of what it diminishes. It means I spend more time with some American friends like you than I do with some people in my own street. And that's not probably a good thing for human flourishing overall, but I still, I still do it. And I still think it's probably the yeah. goods outweigh the bads, but and it's that kind of thing writ large with developments in society as a whole that I'm, I'm trying to do. So I hope I do answer that question in, the, huh. in quite a lot of detail, but the reader will tell me if I have. So, so I mean, would you say encouraging us to be a little more self-reflected kind of like going back to the whole slavery slash all people are created equal, the declaration of independence. Um, like we were like, we wish they would have been a little more self-reflected and, and it's easy on this side, you know, hindsight's 2020 and, and it's easy on this side of history to be, you know, very judgy on, on things in the past as if uh, going, going back again, would we have done anything different if we were actually living in that situation? So yeah. So I, I could, I can sense even from the little I've already read that it, it's, as I'm reading, it's encouraging me to be more self-reflective of how am I, how are people in 200 years writing our history going to point out these major, like, how did you not see yeah. this kind yeah. of thing? Yeah. Well, I, I do. I think that, I think when you read about the past in any detail of any sort, you, you've got to have some encounter like that because it's, you know, it's that famous line, the past is a different country, you know, another country, they do things differently there. It's, you, you read it and go, wow, we are, it's like traveling. You just go, wow, we, these mm-hmm. things that I take are self-evident are not, they, mm-hmm. they're very different in different cultures. But I, I want to, I also, I think want to, I'm quite an optimistic, you know, upbeat kind of person um, <laughs> as you are, I guess. And, um, and I actually want to see that some of the things that are, I, I want to kind of push back a little bit against the this development snuck in and poisoned uh, the well and made everything bad, because I think I want to say that a lot of the things that are responsible, and they are, are responsible for things that make Christianity harder today, are themselves products of Christian impact and influence hmm. in y- years and generations past. And so I, 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 refute, I mean, Peter Berger said famously, Christianity historically has been its own grave digger. Well, I, I use the language of being hoisted by our own petard, but the, so Christianity, Protestantism is a good example um, that it, it introduces things into a culture that in the end make it harder to be a Christian. Christianity itself does that. It, it ends up as, you know, spreading through the empire. It ends up converting the empire, which then ends up doing all sorts of things that in the end will make Christianity more difficult. Christianity makes, in the, in the long run, I've been persuaded of this, you know, makes leads to developments that make societies more affluent. But in the end, that affluence makes families smaller and makes people more privatized. And in the end, makes people go to church less, which in the end leads to lower religious 
observance. And so in a way, Christianity produces things that then make Christianity harder. And that to, to, to therefore say, this is not only boo hiss to these guys and yay yay to these guys, but to say some of these morally complicated things that you we are wrestling with now and seeing the fruit of in current social life are have grown out of things that would not be where they are without Christianity. And that's not to say that we should therefore say, oh, no problem then. It just means that the way we respond to them and engage with them in the public square or with friends and neighbours is needs to be a bit more subtle than this is just a bad thing that came out. So how do you, how do you pro- I never thought about it like that. How do you process that? How, how do you make sense of that? That, that, that Christian values, Christian principles lead to a certain level of flourishing in society that ends up kind of hurting us in the, in the long run. Like what <laughs> that, that's, yeah, I mean, I've never thought of it like that, but I mean, it just as my mind goes various places, it's like, yeah, we became, you know, you, you think about this, the, the massive growth of the, of the, the massive growth of the early church, Largely because it valued women, it treated, it kind of attacked classism to some extent. It had this like really radical economic, and and so people were really attracted to that. And so many people, more and more, were attracted to it. All the till, till you get to the you know the turn of the three hundreds or whatever, when constantly is looking out saying, "Oh my gosh, it would politically be very expedient if I was a little more you know chummy with these Christians because they're kind of taking over the empire." And then that leads to so many things in a post-Constantinian world that ended up not helping the church. I mean, just like you, you said, so I, it, I don't know how to make sense of that. Like, like, so, so the positive impact that Christianity can have on society can lead to often lead to negative impacts on society. Is that, is that a right way to process yeah, it? Or? Yeah. I, I, I think, I think so. So that's a, that you're the one you give, you've mentioned is, and obviously I mentioned as well as, is a, I think a really good example of that, but, but more recently, I think you would say, um, so if we, if we take this period, the, the the role of Christianity in industrialization and in economic growth, I think there's a very clear link there in all sorts of ways, which I try and trace in several chapters in the book. But that in the end, that has made communities fragment and individuals more retreat in, behind their into their initially their nuclear families, and then finally as individuals, which has made church attendance go down, which has made it harder to mm. pass on Christianity and, and to <laughs> and to evangelize. So. That and then even if you look even in today in the sort of in your field you know, of sexual ethics, you think actually most of the impulses to try and push hard against Christian sexual ethics in our culture mm-hmm. originate in Christian impulses somewhere. Mm. As in, we are trying to disaggregate with homosexuality. We're trying to disaggregate people's people what people want to do, people's temptations or people's desires from their natures or we are with trans we are we're trying to make sure that we protect the most vulnerable people and these people are very vulnerable and marginalized people so we want to make sure we make life now that's a christian impulse which is mm. it's just become i mean one of the epigraphs to my book is chesterton when chesterton says the modern world is full of the old christian virtues gone mad but what happens is people with that's a christian impulse that when unte- when untethered from other christian impulses leads to social changes that most Christians now find very difficult. But they've grown out of Christian assumptions about human beings and the care for the weak and the poor and the marginalized and so on, which are actually good assumptions. They've just they've just got slightly out of balance in certain cases and it's led to some changes that are, I find, you find, challenging and that we spend a lot of our lives trying to help people handle. But they are, a lot of them have Christian roots. And I just think talking through those things, again, is not to say no problem here, guys. Of course, you're still going to live in this world. And, but I think it does help us love our neighbors better. I think it helps us understand why they think the way they do. And even to see some of it as being an outgrowth of things that we cherish very dearly. And they might in places see more clearly than we mm-hmm. do. And I think that's a, 
So yes, in that sense, it's self-reflection, but not just about what have I got wrong, but what have what has the world got right, or what? Why does where does why does the world think the way it does? It may well be having grown out of things that are very dear to me. All right, fi- final question. I always love to ask people outside of the U.S. context this question. I, it, it's funny. I, I think my podcast is more popular in the UK than in, a, in, in the U S uh, not, not I mean, like because I, I you think... ask all of these questions about why the American <laughs> revolution disobeyed Romans 13. <laughs> where I was going, where I was going with that is, is, is I, I, I almost said, you know, for our American audience, but I'm like, no, actually my audience is, I mean, the, the numbers are definitely higher because population size, but, but percentage wise are, um, I think per capita, my, my podcast is higher ranked in, in, in your homeland than mine, but, for, you know, as somebody outside the U.S. context, can you help pastor us uh, as as you look on from the outside to American Christianity? I know it's a huge, huge concept, huge movement filled with tons of diversity. Um, but and you can take it in any direction you want to go. But if you were like on your di- on your dying on your pastoral bed, and, and American Christians were like, can you give us some words of wisdom as we are navigating, you know, an upcoming election season and and just the, the integration of politics and Christianity is is not totally unique to the U.S. context, but it has a, a uniqueness that that I think sometimes us fish swimming in water can't really understand what water looks like, you know. So, um, yeah, what, what, any any anywhere you want to go with that is our sort of final yeah, thoughts I, here I, on this conversation. It's a, it's a very it's a generous question, and it's one the because I've, I get asked this quite a lot because of lots of friends in America and and, and traveling there. I feel less confident answering it every time I get asked it because I'm aware of how many, how deep some of the differences are between America and not just Britain and, and many other post-Christian countries. I think something I, something I think is true, which I can help, I think, is that you guys are, or the American church is experiencing a, 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 a loss of um, prestige and adherence that in about seven years that took about 70 in Western Europe. Mm. So you are, you are experiencing something that has happened elsewhere in the world. You're just experiencing it much more quickly. Mm. And that is more painful in a strange way, which is in some ways good because it means that there is something to something precious is being lost, which in Europe people just gradually went, you know, that famous line, I no longer, you know, it's the, it's just the long melancholy, withdrawing roar of christianity you know, way back in the 19th century people were saying that and um and whereas in america it's like no there's a, a proper apocalypse about it in, in a lot of circles huh. but i do think that to see them as being analogous but that one of them is just happening much faster can help people because they'd say firstly there is a a future for a church that is much more marginal in the society than it was and the the fact that Christian values not being held in the in the in the public square, and obviously we've given lots of examples, by the way, of when they never have been on yeah. you know race and slavery and many other. So it's, let's, let's take that for red. But even now, that if you see Christ, certain Christian convictions being pushed to the margins of the public square, that doesn't necessarily mean that the church doesn't have a future of being able to shine as a light. And there are some benefits to it um, because there are some there there can be a a, a winnowing. I guess, a, a, a purifying of the church. I don't mean the church in Britain is more pure than it is in America. I'm not saying that, but I think that certainly you're much less, it's true in the States already, let's say that, you are much less likely to go to church if you don't believe a word of it if you live in San Francisco than you are if you live in Montgomery or whatever. Like there are lots of examples like that. And in Britain, that's obviously writ large and in, in Europe it is. And that there can be some, so some, the encouragement is there can be some benefits to that. 
but I think the you know obviously the challenge is that it is also painful and it's happening at a rate mm. which makes people feel discombobulated, which is partly what I'm trying to help with this book. Um, but also just a, a real sense of it can tip into as it often does anger and resentment, and I think that's where past story we just have to help the people of God. So let me, providence, you know, God, the, the big 18th century themes, you know, God, God is in charge over all things. He knew this was going to happen. It has happened to countries before, countries who were profoundly Christian, it would seem, from top to bottom, particularly in the rise of Islam, of course, when got completely, the church got completely overturned. And then a thousand years later, you'd see there's almost no Christians left. And even within a hundred years, there were not many left. And that, and the church has survived and the church mm -hmm. has bedded in and winter has turned to spring and will once again turn to summer but that is that that long view of what happens yeah. in other nations can be an encouragement to us but that doesn't take away from the pain of it and a lot of the time i just don't i don't think i know what i would do where i pastor in america because mm -hmm. i actually think now as opposed to 20 years ago i thought it's easier to be a pastor in america than in britain but now i definitely don't think that i think uh. it's harder because the issues people in the church are facing are more complex and demanding than they are in my church i think yeah that's good that's good i you know i i would love I, I think this is true i mean I, I would i'll throw it out there and people can kind of chew on it but it, you know losing cultural as christians when we lose cultural power we should not equate that to losing gospel influence in fact i would probably say that when we had cultural power that actually stunted our actual gospel witness. I don't think Christianity was designed to have cultural power. The entire Bible was written by people and for people that did not have cultural cultural power. Um, and I know that even the word power we, we need to define and, and so on. But um, yeah. I, th I think that's, that scene at the end of John 6, when, when the disciples are the only ones left and they've all gone, they've all been offended by what Jesus said. And he said, are you going to, are you leaving too? And they're like, where else are we going to go? You've got the words of life. I, I think something of that has been happening to the Western church over a hundred years, but I think it's probably happening quite quickly in, in the States. And I agree with you. I think it can be for the good of the church. I've never thought about it in those terms that what many other Christians have experienced in, in, in their, in their country, it just happened more slowly where for whatever reason it, it's, it's happened so quickly here and it has caused a kind of disorienting among Christians. I just, you know, yeah. So many. <laughs> well, I just open up more, more questions in, in my mind, but uh, I've taken you over an hour, Andrew. Um, Man, I I'm excited to continue to read this book. Uh, it's it's again very well written too. I mean, I, you're a good writer, so that's not shouldn't be surprising. It's just when you, <laughs> you you pull together just so much from history in in a way that and and you make it exciting and e and easy to read and hard to put down and 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 also very uh, relevant. So anyway, I'm yeah i'm super excited Thank to so continue much. reading this book so appreciate you man oh that's really kind of you oh it's great yeah. talking about it i so appreciate the time This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.